I want to just kind of continue. Uh, we've been in our series this summer on just looking at God's favorite stories, again, the parables uh, that Jesus told. And as I've said repeatedly throughout the series, um, oftentimes we just love the parables. We think they're great stories, they're nice stories. Um, and I have contended throughout the series that if that is how you view the parables as good, nice, friendly little stories, chances are very, very good that you have totally missed the point of the parable because Jesus would often tell parables and the parables would leave his audience in a state of shock because of some of the things that he would say. He would refer to Samaritans as heroes. Uh, he talks about a prodigal son uh, that was very offensive to the Jews. And so oftentimes when Jesus would tell parables, they kind of just had kind of this uh, deer caught in the headlight look on the audience's faces because what he was saying was just so shocking and it was just kind of this sense of disbelief. And if you had any in, uh, doubt of his intention or designs of these parables, if you were here last Sunday, there was an incredible amount of tension in this congregation um, as we looked at the parable of the sheep and the goats. As a matter of fact, it was amazing to me, there was not one person last Sunday morning who got up, went out to the bathroom, or to get their coffee field, filled, refilled. The tension in this room was so heavy because I think that is the point Jesus was trying to get across with these parables. The way you felt last Sunday is how Jesus' audiences felt on an ongoing basis. There was a tension between what he was saying and how it applied to them in their lives. I obviously you know, had very strong, swift reaction um, from last Sunday. And my whole point on that is, is you don't have to agree with me. I have never, ever in all of my years of preaching ever said that you have to agree with my interpretation. But you have to wrestle with the scriptures. So if you don't agree with what I came away from saying on the parable of the sheep and the goats, Matthew 7, uh, when many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, um, and Jesus said, depart from me for I never knew you. Well, did we not cast out demons and did we not prophesy and did we not do many miracles in your name? And Jesus said, I never knew you. Um, you know, you go to James 2. Uh, that's, you know, I know people say, well, that was before the Holy Spirit and the baptism. Well, James isn't. James chapter 2. Go in and look at, you know, faith versus works. Um, and faith without works is dead. And so I just kind of put it back on people who had a strong disagreement with me and said, you don't have to agree with me. You do not have to come to the interpretation I come to on any sermon ever at all. But... It is on you to take those same scriptures and you wrestle with them and see where you come out on them. And so this is often kind of what Jesus did. He kind of just put it out there and said, okay, now you have got to wrestle with this. You got to work this out. And this is kind of what we talked about, working out your salvation with fear and trembling. I got enough of my own salvation to work out. I don't have time to work yours out. You got to do that yourself. And so often, we don't want to do that. We want, we want the pastor or we want uh, you know, somebody else to do that for us. We don't want to struggle. We don't want to work through and walk this out in our own lives. And, and 
that's kind of the tension that Jesus was really creating um, with his audience, and it's really kind of what I wanted to try to create uh, with that sermon last Sunday as well. Now, what's interesting to me also is as you really begin to look at the parables of Jesus, and you kind of just begin to read them one after another, which I've been doing, you'll find there are just some very common reoccurring themes throughout them. And today's parable really is no exception. Today we're going to look at the parable of the fishing net that Jesus told in Matthew 13, beginning in verse 47. It's a really, really short, very succinct parable. But you're going to find there is one particular element in this parable that kind of occurs in many other parables Jesus told. We're going to kind of talk about that um, reoccurring theme here this morning. Matthew 13, if you've got your Bibles, you can open up. Otherwise, follow along with me on the screen, beginning in verse 47. And Jesus says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a fishing net that was thrown into the water and caught fish of every kind. When the net was full, they dragged it up on the shore, sat down, and sorted the good fish into crates, but threw the bad ones away. That is the way it will be at the end of the world. The angels will come and separate the wicked people from the righteous, throwing the wicked into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now again, you'll, you'll, if you've been with us in this uh, series, you'll know they're just, again, kind of some common reoccurring themes. And one of the common reoccurring themes Jesus includes here again is the punishment of the wicked. Now we saw it again last week as we talked through and worked through the parable of the sheep and the goats. The punishment of the goats, you may remember, according to Matthew 28, beginning in verse 41, was Jesus, is, in telling the parable, refers to the goats saying, away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. Now I would just say that, that initially I believe hell was created for the devil and his demons. I don't believe it was ever God's intent, his desire, his want for anyone other than devils and demons uh, to uh, go into that eternal fire. Um, but Jesus is now saying that there are people now who will receive that same punishment. Then a couple verses later, verse 46, and they will go away into eternal punishment. Now, I'll just be honest with you. One of the ways that I kind of do sermon prep is when I'm looking at a verse of scripture, I will go to a lot of what I consider respectable commentaries. And I'll look at what they will say given a particular passage. Um, and oftentimes I do that more just to say, is what I'm about to say on this in line with, with, you know, with respectable biblical scholars and thinkers. In other words, I'm not going to get up here and say something that is just so far off the beaten path that people are kind of just sitting there, you know, thinking, what is he talking about? Where is he getting this from? Uh, so oftentimes I want to go back and look at what are biblical scholars, commentaries from well-respected, I mean, I'm talking, you know, John Wesley, uh, Martin Luther. I mean, we're going back and looking at, at, at church fathers, contemporary uh, biblical scholars. I'm just interested, what are they 
and, and how are they interpreting this scripture. And many biblical scholars, when they look at this whole concept of eternal punishment, uh, eternal flames, they are referring to hell. Again, we see it in the wedding parable, uh, the parable of the wedding celebration. Remember as we talked about the king who is God, represents God in the story, is hosting a wedding celebration. We talked about that being the marriage supper of the lamb, talked about in Revelation 19. And and there was the one uh, there who um, was at the wedding celebration, but remember he wasn't in proper wedding attire, and the king comes up and recognizes that he's not in wedding attire, and then in verse 13, um, he instructs his servants and says, bind this man's hands and feet, throw him into the outer darkness, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, another reference to hell. In Luke 16, Jesus tells a story. Now there is, you know, some scholars think of this as a parable. Some people think of this as a literal story. Um, And it talks about, Jesus says, there was a rich man. And so oftentimes people will look at that and say he is referring to someone. uh, This is a true life story. It's not a parable. Others interpret this as a parable. Again, that's one of those things where you study it and you kind of just make your own conclusion. But in the story, Jesus says there's a rich man and there's a beggar. Both men die. Uh, The rich man Uh, goes to Hades. Now, Hades is not the same thing as hell, but in in the Old Testament, Hades is where the wicked would go to await their judgment. So there's coming a judgment day, and on that day, uh, the living and the dead shall be resurrected, and then the judgment will come. And so those wicked uh, go to a place called Hades. They're awaiting judgment day, after which the scriptures teach, then they are sent to hell, which is their final place. Jesus says, on the other hand, the beggar uh, in this story went to Abraham's bosom. Now again, that is a place of comfort. That is where the righteous go and there they are awaiting judgment day as well where they will receive their resurrected bodies and their rewards. So Jesus says the rich man in this story describes his place of torment in verse 24 saying, I am in anguish in these flames. So again, over and over in both parables and straightforward teaching, Jesus referenced the reality of hell multiple times. Um, If you've got a strong concordance, um, it's a very simple reference. Go in there and look up the word hell. It'll show you every place in scripture where that word occurs. You will be shocked to find how many times Jesus used that word in his teaching. And it was often in the form of a warning um, to those he was teaching. So again, uh, it, it, is, it is used so many times. In fact, I think it is impossible to overlook. William Booth, who founded the Salvation Army, made the following observation, and he called these um, potential points of departure, and he listed six of them. And he said, these are potential points of departure If revival and renewal are not an ongoing process in the church. And he said these potential six points of departure 
are, the first one is, you will have a Christianity without Christ. If there's not renewal, if there's not revival as an ongoing process in the church, you will get to a point where you will begin to peddle, you will begin to preach a Christianity without Christ. The second thing is, you'll have forgiveness without repentance. Does God forgive sin? Absolutely. But you must repent. And so again, there is this, there is all of this talk in the church about forgiveness of sin, but there's nothing or very little said about repentance. You have got to repent of your sins. If you confess your sins, that is your job. That is repentance, the Bible says. If you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. We want to talk about the fact that God is faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But folks, there is, there is a requirement at the beginning of that if you confess your sins. That's your part. And this is a part, again, where we want to talk about forgiveness in the church without repentance. Third thing, he says, salvation without regeneration. In other words, I'm saved, but I'm just going to continue to live in my sin. I'm going to continue to live the way I always lived before I came to Christ. So he's talking salvation without a change or regeneration of heart. Religion without the Holy Spirit. Again, Bible talks about having, the, the, uh, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. That's religion. It is, it is religion without the Holy Spirit. Number five is politics without God. Oh, what about separation of church? and say, Folks, we, have, we are where we are at today in this country because we have politics and politicians without God. God. Enough said. Six one, heaven without hell. Now say what you want about the first five of those, whether they're true or not, but I think without a doubt, number six is alive and well in most churches in the United States. I'll just use myself as an example of that. I'll, I'll, if I'm going to pick on anybody else, I'll pick on me first. I've been here for over 10 years, and I have never once come to this pulpit and preached seriously or in any depth on the subject of hell. Matter of fact, somebody not too long ago asked if our church even believed in hell. When I said we did, their response was, oh, I just never hear you talk about it. Guilty. It's charged. Honestly, it's just as hard to preach about as I'm sure it is to listen about. I mean, I, you know, kind of, I feel like I kind of came to this even this morning with a little bit of kicking and screaming. This wasn't, you know, I didn't, you know, get like really all charged and psyched up and excited about this topic this week. Because it's not, it's not one of those topics you love to get up and to talk about. I mean, one of the things that oftentimes just causes me to cringe is when somebody will refer to a, a sermon that I've given as hellfire, damnation, and brimstone. I'm like, 
I, I just try to avoid that at all costs, you know, and so when somebody uh, says that in reference to a sermon I've given, I'm just like, oh, I, it's just hard for me sometimes to hear uh, that, but the reality of hell and that it is clearly taught in the scriptures tells me it has got to be dealt with. It's got to be addressed. It's got to be spoken about regardless of our level of discomfort. Jesus clearly, I don't know how you can read the, the gospels and come away with any other thought. Jesus clearly, succinctly believed in the reality of hell and he taught quite a bit about it. So why should the church, the body of Christ, we say Jesus is the head. Why should the church that teaches and believes in the reality of heaven avoid teaching about the reality of hell? Is, is, is Booth's observation accurate? Have we come to a place in churches today, and I'll include ours, where we've gotten to a place of departure where we want to talk about heaven without hell. I'll let you decide. But when you look at the teachings of Jesus, he believed and he taught. There was a place of eternal torment. There was a place of everlasting punishment that I believe was, again, originally designed for the devil and his demons. But Jesus also said there would also include in that population a portion of the human race. Matter of fact, somebody's response to uh, my sermon last week was basically you're just telling us then that half of us are going to hell. I said, I never said that. I don't even think I ever came close to suggesting such a thing. But I will tell you, I think Jesus suggested such a thing. You open up your Bible to Matthew 7, his Sermon on the Mount, beginning in verse 13, Jesus made the following observation, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many, many enter through it. But small is the gate, narrow is the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. New Living Translation, uh, this same scripture, it's a little bit more descriptive. And there it says, you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult and only a few ever find it. Again, wrestle with the scripture. If you don't agree with my interpretation, wrestle with the scripture in your heart. Come before the Holy Spirit. Uh, ask him to lead you into all truth. That, that he will do. But again, the impression that I am left with as I look at this scripture is Jesus is saying the majority of the human race ends up in hell. If that's true, if that's what Jesus believed, what are the implications for us? I saw a survey recently where a vast majority of people in the United States believed in hell. A huge number, I think like 80%, maybe even more than that, believed in hell. 
sizable majority of those people said they believed they knew at least one person who would be there, whereas a very small percentage believed they themselves would be. Yet according to Jesus, very few ever find the road that leads to life. Now that word life is zoe in the Greek, and Vines defines that as life in the absolute sense, life as God has it, that which the Father has in himself and which he gave to the incarnate Son to have in himself. The Bible says Jesus has come to give us that kind of life. And he said the reality is very few ever find it. Jesus was not alone in his belief in the reality of hell as a place of eternal torment and punishment. Now the Apostle Paul, now this is amazing. Do you realize the Apostle Paul never uses the word hell in any of his writings? Isn't that amazing? Paul never uses the word hell but Paul often referred to the fate of the wicked, the unrighteous, the ungodly more than any other New Testament writer. The Apostle Paul was very clear about death as a result of sin, whereby the wicked or the ungodly, the unrighteous would perish or be destroyed by the wrath of God. The sinner, according to the Apostle Paul, stood condemned and would be judged by God on account of his sin. And unless the sinner repented and turns to Christ, he will be punished by God when Christ returns. That was Paul's theology. That was pretty much how Paul taught in regards to the fate of the wicked, the ungodly, and the unrighteous. Paul described the fate of the wicked the ungodly, the unrighteous, with words such as perish, destroy, wrath, punishment, and other ways more than 80 times in his 13 letters. Let me just put this in perspective for you. Paul made reference to the fate of the wicked, the ungodly, the unrighteous, the unrepentant, more times in his letters than he mentioned God's forgiveness, mercy, or heaven combined. Let me say that again. Follow along with me on the screen. I have, a, I have a resource I can show you in my office. I can look up a word in the Greek dictionary. It will tell me every occurrence uh, where that word occurs in the New Testament so I can look up certain words. Um, and I did that. And so you can do that if, if you uh, feel I miscounted. Paul made reference to the fate of the wicked more times in his letters than he mentioned God's forgiveness, mercy, or heaven combined. I hear some people talk about the New Testament like it is chocolate fountains, rainbows, and lollipops. And folks, there's a lot of good news in the, in the New Testament, and we need to be sharing that good news but we also need to be balanced in our teaching and in our approach that there are other alternatives than heaven. So even Paul, who never used the word hell, nor did he uh, you know, go into any great lengths in describing hell in any detail, he really 
confidently and assuredly believe that the wicked will face a horrific fate if they remain in their own sin. Look at just one. I'm just going to give you one instance again. Over 80 times in his letters. Let me just point to one. Second Thessalonians chapter 1 beginning in verse 6. God considers it just. That's his justice operating there. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Should I read that again? Paul may not use the word hell, but he certainly believed in it. So when you consider the two, to me, most prominent, visible people in the New Testament, Jesus and Paul, believed in, taught about, warned against, spoke about passionately, about hell, why? Do the majority of Christians and churches avoid even mentioning the word hell? I was, I was actually, I pastored a church one time where it was basically, and I was told this, forbidden to use the word devil, hell, sin, because they just felt those words were such an affront. They didn't even want me using the words in a sermon. That's how far we've gone to avoid even talking about this, and yet here you have Jesus and Paul who talk repeatedly and passionately about the reality of hell. If we really believe in a literal hell that is eternal, and it involves torment, and then unless, and, and people are gonna go there unless they repent and turn to Jesus. If we really believe that, why are we so silent? Why are we so fearful? How many of us have loved ones, friends, coworkers? And again, we, we're not here to judge their hearts, but there is a check in our spirit. We're concerned that if they were to die today, there maybe is a, a good possibility they would spend eternity in hell. Again, if we really believe in what the Bible teaches concerning hell, why are we not more engaged in evangelism, in reaching out to the lost and sharing the good news of Jesus Christ? I believe the lack of urgency, the passivity in sharing the message of hell, eternal damnation, separation from God by individual Christians and churches can really be found centered in two main false beliefs. The first false belief that many Christians and churches embrace is the idea of universalism. Now, you may not be someone who fully embraces universalism, but I've met people who will embrace aspects of universalism um, and Christianity. Um, universalism is the belief that everyone will go to heaven eventually. This idea of universalism was first uh, made by Origen back in around 200 AD, and even though his beliefs were later deemed heretical, uh, for about 1,600 years, nobody believed or taught on the ideas of universalism. 
And that all began to change around the 1800s when several prominent theologians began to kind of resurrect Oregon's ideas regarding universalism. Again, this idea that, uh, that, that God will eventually save everyone regardless when all is said and done. Now, there are differing forms of universalism. There's what we would call the non-Christian universalists. They believe there are many ways to God. Jesus is just one valid path of many. Now, Jesus himself refutes that claim in John 14, 6, when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I've often said there are many ways to Jesus. And by that I mean we all have different experiences that have brought us to Jesus. That we have different experiences where we have come to faith in Jesus Christ. But there is only one way to the Father the Scripture teaches, and that way is through Jesus Christ himself. There are also what I say are, are Christian universalists who are kind of like evangelical Christians will say, yes, we believe that Jesus is the only way to the Father, and yet we still believe that God is going to somehow end up saving everyone because of his unconditional love for mankind. So oftentimes they'll look at hell as kind of really more of a scare tactic uh, than a reality, a place for the devil and his demons, but they will say it's, it's not for mankind. Now, one of the more obvious issues I have with the universalist approach to salvation and the reality of hell is that if God just ends up saving everybody in the end, regardless, then the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross really wasn't necessary, Right? I mean, if God is going to just save everybody regardless, there really was no point in Jesus coming and paying the ultimate price by the shedding of his blood, the breaking of his body, his death upon the cross. This is the case that Paul makes in Romans 3, beginning in verse 23. He says, for everyone has sinned. All of us have fallen short of God's glorious, holy, righteous standard. And yet, God with undeserved kindness. We didn't deserve it. He is expressing kindness to us that we don't deserve is what Paul is saying. Declares that we are righteous. How did he do that? How did God do that? Well, Paul says he did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. What's the penalty of your sin? Hmm. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right. That's righteousness. People are made right or righteous with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. Our righteousness, our right standing with God, and that's what that word righteousness means, was made possible only through the redeeming work of Jesus Christ by means of his death upon the cross. 
Without Jesus going to the cross in our place, without him shedding his blood, dying and being raised again to life, we would still be lost in our sin, separated from God, and condemned to an eternity in hell. Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 14, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, our experiences validate that, right? You know that. The Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only, only in this way could he set free all who lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. Do you realize because of what Jesus came to do, his death on the cross, you have the potential, the promise to be freed from the fear of death. I'll never forget the first time I felt fearful of death. All of us have experienced that probably at some point where that reality sinks in to your psyche, I am going to die. You don't know where, you don't know when, you don't know how, you just know that you are. And there is a fear that comes with that. God understood that. Jesus understood that. And so he makes the point is this is the only way that we could be set free from that fear of dying. Jesus' death upon the cross, you've got to understand this, was the ultimate, final, once for all sacrifice for mankind because, folks, there was no other way for sinful man to be forgiven and to be restored in a right relationship with God the Father. This was part of the struggle that Jesus had in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if there's another way, let this cup pass from me. But if there is no other way, your will be done. That was the struggle in the Garden of Gethsemane. God, if there's another way we can accomplish the forgiveness of sin, the redemption of mankind, but if not, I'm willing to obey. If God was just going to save everybody in the end, then the cross wasn't really necessary, and Jesus' death in our place was in vain. Now, I could, I could go on and give you a whole host of other reasons why I reject universalism, but that to me is the biggest and the most obvious point of contention that I have with universalist approach to salvation and the reality of hell. And, and I think this one reason should cause any of you in here this morning who think that way to reevaluate your thinking regarding universalism. The other reason I think some Christians and churches avoid the subject and reality of hell is a false belief that there will be other chances to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior after this life. I actually know people friends of mine who passionately believe, defend, and articulate this point of view. And here's the thing, when I ask them for a scriptural reference that supports that belief, they don't have one. Man, that's a dangerous branch to be on, folks. To believe something that strongly with such implications and have no scriptural reference ought to cause you to rethink that just on its own. The idea is that even if a person goes to hell, it's only temporary. 
kind of like the Catholic's view of purgatory. After a certain amount of time or maybe money or prayers or however they have rigged that system, they'll say hopefully the experience of hell, you know, it'll be so traumatic that they'll eventually turn to God and repent. If not, God will just send them back to hell until eventually they've had enough and they accept God's gracious offer of salvation. That's kind of the idea behind this whole notion that they'll have other chances beyond this life. And again, this whole idea, it's just rooted in the unconditional love of God, his kindness, his mercy, his goodness. And it's the question, how could a loving God send anyone to the torment of hell for all eternity? That's their question. How could a loving God do that? And their response to their own question is, he can't and he won't. So that's why I believe we'll have as many opportunities as we need beyond this life to accept God's gracious offer of salvation. Again, the whole problem with this approach is it disproportionately appeals to certain attributes of God such as his love, his grace, his mercy, his kindness, his patience. They'll, they'll list all of that. And at the same time, they'll turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to his holiness, his justice, his righteousness, his anger, his wrath towards sin, and his jealousy toward us. God is all those attributes I've listed and more. And all that God is, do you realize that that exists in perfect unity? Every attribute of God coexists, dwells within God, and it is in perfect unity, perfect balance with himself. In other words, God doesn't have to suspend his judgment, his anger, or his wrath in order to be loving, patient, kind, and merciful. Let me say that again. God does not need to suspend his judgment, his anger, his wrath in order to be loving, patient, kind, and merciful. God is able to be all that he is and to be perfectly unified and balanced in his dealings with us. I was reading a book one time on, on the attributes of God and they're kind of going through and they're listing all of the attributes, not all of them. I, I, don't, I don't think you can list all of the attributes of God, but the big ones. And there were probably like about maybe 25 or 30 attributes. You know, the, the omnipotence, the omnipresence, the strength of God, the supremacy of God, the goodness of God, the kindness of God, the love, the mercy. I just was listing all of these. And I read this and got to the very, very end of the book. And the author made this statement. I will never forget this statement. He said, what do you think you would have if all of those attributes and characteristics of God came into play at one time. The cross of Christ. That floored me. The cross of Jesus Christ sees the complexity, the completeness, the enormity, the infinity of God's nature, his character, his attributes, all come in play together all at once in perfect unity, in perfect balance. So he doesn't have to suspend one in order to use 
another. So while we can ask the question, how could a loving God send people to hell? A better question may be, how can a holy, just, righteous God allows sinful people into his presence? That is the better question. The answer is he can't because of who he is due to his nature of holiness. Sin cannot abide in his presence. Just do a simple study on the, on the attribute of holiness. God cannot. It goes against his nature for sin to abide in his presence. But because of his unconditional love for us, his overwhelming desire to be in relationship with us, he made a way for our sins to be removed through his son, Jesus Christ. Now again, it's up to us. God's done all that God can do to bring us salvation, to restore us in a right relationship, and the responsibility now shifts to us. What are you gonna do with that? God's done his part, here's your part. You either accept it or you reject it. You take it or you leave it. God's done all he can do. Short of violating your free will, which he's not gonna do, in order for, to offer you his free gift of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9.27, I'm going to close with this. And just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment for both the living and the dead, for the righteous, for the unrighteous, so also Christ died once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people, he will come again, not to deal with our sins. Those have already been dealt with through the blood of Christ. Your sins have been dealt with. God has made a way for you to be declared righteous, to be declared, to be declared clean. If you will confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. If you confess your sins. He will come again, not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who eagerly Wait for him. So that's what communion is for this morning. For some of you, it may be a first-time response to God's offer of salvation through the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. Maybe this morning, you've never really kind of thought about that. Maybe you've never really understood what it is to have a relationship with God. Uh, that Maybe you've never understood the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross and what that was really designed to do. It was designed to take away your sins so that you could go from unrighteousness to righteousness. So you could go from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. This is an affirmation of that this morning. Jesus came because of his great love for you and I, and he chose to offer up his life as a sacrifice for our sins. He who knew no sin took our sins upon himself that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's what he did. And we either accept that or we reject that. When we accept that, it says we're forgiven and we are given that Zoe life I talked about earlier. If we reject it, Jesus said, there is a place of outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There is a place that, that was created for the devil and his demons that was God's original intent. Mankind was included in that. 
when we fell in the Garden of Eden and mankind became infected with sin. All of a sudden now, hell also had a place and a purpose beyond the devil and his demons. But that is not God's desire. It's not his heart. It's not what he wants. So this morning, as we just want to invite, amazing, very, very quiet in here again this morning. No movement. Creating good, healthy tension in here. This may not apply to you. You may be born again. You may be saved. You may know without a shadow of a doubt this morning that if you were to die, you would go to heaven, and that's great. That's awesome. We want that for everybody, but, but what about people beyond you? What about the people in your family, in your workplace, in your neighborhood? Do you care about them? Or is it just about you? I think this is, again, part of why we avoid the subject. We don't want the responsibility. If that's true, what are the implications for us as Christians? What are the implications for us as a church? Are we willing to share? Are we willing to invite? Are we willing to witness? Are we willing to go like Paul and like Jesus and like all the other disciples who ultimately paid the price with their lives? Why did they do that? Because they believed unless people turned from their sins that there was a place of eternal torment waiting for them and their love of humanity and their understanding of the reality of hell motivated them to go out and to share that message with as many people as possible. And oftentimes I think that's why we like buying into these notions of universalism of everybody will get another chance after death because it takes the burden off of us. Jesus came because he loved you. He also came because he loved the world. And we have been called. It is our mandate, our mission to go and to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we just again thank you. And Lord, I know that this is a, it's a heavy message. It's a hard message. It's a difficult message. And yet it is a message I think we need to hear. Message we need to really contemplate the implications of. Do we really believe this? And if so, what is our response? So God, as we just sit here, Lord, and again, we just kind of contemplate and we think about the impact of this, Lord. Just pray that you'd speak to our hearts. God, sometimes we feel like uh, our response needs to be to go to all the world, and that may be at some point. But right now, God, my guess is, is you're probably just speaking to us about those who are very close to us, those who are immediate to us. Maybe not those around the world, but maybe those just next door, in the next office cubicle. 
And so, Lord, as we contemplate this message for our own lives and for the lives of others, God, I just pray, Lord, that you would just begin to stir within us a mission, a call, a mandate to go and to make disciples of the world as you've called us to do. And so, Father, I just pray, Lord, that you just would speak, just move. Give us a sense of urgency as we see all of the things that are going on in the world today. Give us just, again, a sense of urgency to go and to share knowing that so much is at stake. So this morning, God, as we just kind of come to this place of closure here, again, as we contemplate the body and the blood of Jesus, Lord, we just thank you that you sent your son because he loved us so much, because he was willing to take our sin upon himself, that we could be forgiven and restored, that we could receive that zoe life. So, Father, as we again contemplate as we receive the broken body, the shed blood of Christ, Father, again, I just pray that you'll reinforce that on our hearts this morning of not only your great love, but also that great call, that great responsibility to go and to share it with others. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we kind of